The swamp is his lifeblood, his source of strength. But even its potent waters fail to invigorate him now. Barely able to stand, he watches, unmoving, as his enemy's craft picks up speed. As the wind racing past its propeller winds a cold metallic dirge, a song of death that hangs in the thick, humid Everglades air as the thing of fiberglass and steel collides with his miry form. Miry, that is, save for one hand of flesh and blood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of a 70s swamp-based monster comic. Today on the program, Man-Thing number eight, The Gift of Fear. It's the conclusion of a story I started last week, well, last episode, about the Fountain of Youth and a hidden utopia. And utopia will be the topic of my pre-ramble this time around. But first... A couple of things. One is a minor mistake I made last episode. There, um, There's a character that is the partner in crime of F.A. Schist, uh, and I called him Jack Wickham. His real name is Hargood Wickham. Now, you can understand how I made that mistake. I mean, Hargood and Jack are practically the same name, so it's easy to get those two mixed up. I don't know why I called him Jack. It just, it just happened, I guess. It's an honest mistake. And to be completely honest, it's not that big of a deal. I just got a little confused. But, you see, I have this, uh, I have this low-key version of OCD. It forces me to obsess about things that don't really matter. I mean, obsessing over details that would say, make me more efficient or make me more money. Oh, I'll I'll just let those go. No problem. Uh, I won't even give them a second thought. But God forbid I flub the name of a minor side character in an obscure 70s comic about a swamp monster, and I'm up all night. I mean... Seriously, I just, I just lie there in bed staring at the darkened ceiling, cursing myself and my stupidity. Jack Wickham. Jack Wickham. I can't believe I said Jack. Haven't slept in a week, I tell you. Anyway, I'm rectifying that now. It's Hargood. Hargood. Hargood Wickham. Whew. That's a load off my chest. Seriously, I, I've, I've made mistakes on my other podcast, The Collected Edition, which, uh, which can be found at Collected Edition Podcast, uh, also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, in case you're curious. And I've brought this I brought this concern up with, with Brian Reese, my co-host on the show, and he says uh, lots of helpful things like, who cares? And stuff happens, move on. But seriously, move on? Move on? How can one move on when you got a name wrong? I mean, at, at one point on the collected edition, I said that Aquaman Death of a Prince included 34 issues, when in fact it includes 25 issues. That's just unacceptable, it's bad math, and it's just plain wrong. Well, more sleepless nights, I guess. So anyway, to be perfectly clear, Hargood Wickham. Also, on a different note, uh, I've received some really great comments recently, some nice things being said about the program. One in particular from, uh, from Jason Atomic, who sent me an email with some, sent me some encouraging words and some nice artwork featuring Man-Thing and Howard the Duck. That was, that was really awesome. Thank you, Jason. And Jason also brought up the fact that last week was the 11th anniversary of Steve Gerber's death. Uh, now, I did know this was happening, and I had I had thought about doing something, uh, a special episode of sorts, uh, a eulogy, I guess. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized, well, you know, I'm actually doing a podcast about Man-Thing where I basically sing his praises pretty much every episode. So really, what, what more could I do? And personally, I mean, the anniversary of a person's death is an occasion. That's, you know, 
that's not really the word I want to use, but it's momentous in a sense. Uh, but I always felt that a death remembrance is 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 not quite right to do. It, it it's sort of celebrating their loss rather than emphasizing their life. Uh, I'd rather mark uh, the anniversary of a, of a birth or a particular publication date of an important work. Uh, just something that's more I don't know more positive, more more alive, I guess. All that being said, I will still mention a couple of things now that I um, now that I've now that I've started talking about it. Steve Gerber died uh, February tenth, two thousand eight. Uh, that dubious anniversary it was, was a week ago, as I record this. And I remember at the time hearing the news, uh, hearing hearing the news almost in passing. It came across one of my news feeds with a with a title like "Legendary Comics Creator Steve Gerber Dies, Age Sixty, You know, which is way too young. And I remember feeling not sadness exactly, but just empty. <laughs> loss is the perfect word for it. Not just the loss of the man, but the loss of his ideas, uh, of his stories, of his wit and his his unique experience of the world. I remember feeling just awful that he would never get to share that with us again. Steve Gerber's creations, uh, the stories that he told, were a huge part of my childhood. Man-Thing, Howard the Duck, Omega the Unknown, The Defenders, and more. These things, these characters, were part of my life. They... They entertained me, yes, but uh, but they were also kind of a comfort. I mean, I could dream bigger because of these stories. I could be a better person because of these characters. And I, and I know that sounds really ridiculous to some people. I mean, how could you be a better person because of an anthropomorphic duck or a gloopy swamp monster? Well, it's because of the ideas that they imparted, because of the way I was challenged to think differently about the world. Uh, to think differently about relationships, about what a hero is, about the absurdity of this world. Steve Gerber held a mirror up to this world, and what was reflected back was silly and horrific and magical. In the end, Steve Gerber did a truly wonderful thing, a thing that's more difficult than one would think. He shared his imagination. He shared his ideas. He shared his voice he shared his stories. And when I learned of his death 11 years ago, I remember feeling that the world was just a bit more empty. But I'm thankful for the things he put in it before he left. All right, so let me take a break. I'll plug another podcast that I like, and I'll be right back. Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Doctor Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red, Captain Adam, Mr. Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Utopia. In common usage today, when people use the word utopia, it generally means perfect place, or a state of being that is Happiness and contentment, sunshine, lollipops and rainbows, everything that's wonderful. 
There in Utopia, you can ride a unicorn while enjoying a hot fudge sundae on a sundae on your way home to a house that's made of soft, cushy pillows and smells of cotton candy, where you'll play all day with your puppy and or kitten, depending on your animal cuteness preference. Basically, Utopia just means heaven on earth. That's not exactly how it was intended, however. The term Utopia comes from the title of a work of satire written in 1516 by Sir Thomas More called uh, Utopia. Moore was a lawyer, a statesman, a philosopher, a writer, and, a, and apparently a pretty pious fella, so much so that the Catholic Church made him a saint. So, you know, good on him. He was also counselor to Henry VIII. That's right, Henry Codpiece himself, who eventually put Tommy Moore to death on trumped-up charges because that Henry, he was one hell of a guy. None of what I just said does any kind of justice to Thomas More. He was, uh, he was a really fascinating figure and worth the, worth the time to read about, but not something I'm going to go into right now because I got a swamp monster to get to. But I will talk about one particular book he wrote. As an aside, this was a really interesting time to be alive when a person could excel in a variety of disciplines. You could be a scientist, a philosopher, a scholar, a statesman, a theologian, as well as a writer of tales and fiction all at once. Well, you know, provided you were, a, you were a man, of course. But, you know, every period has its caveats. I often think that I could have thrived in a situation like that because, you know, I like to dabble in a variety of subjects myself. I mean, think about it. Other than the constant threat of horrific violence, political upheaval, war, invasion, starvation, backbreaking toil, unsanitary conditions, infestation of intestinal worms, and explosive bouts of dysentery, I'm sure it was a lovely time to, to be alive. Eh, on second thought, maybe just being an independent podcaster is slightly better. At least I don't have to worry about being martyred for my unwavering stance on the importance of a comic book swamp monster. Or do I? Anywho, Utopia. Or to give it its full title, a frightful, pleasant, and witty work no less beneficial than entertaining of a republic's best state of the new island of Utopia. Medieval and Renaissance writers, uh, not very keen on the whole brevity thing, but I love it. So the book is itself complicated. Essentially, it tells the tale of a traveler's visit to an island country called Utopia. That is, on its surface, the ideal state. It is, it is very rigidly set up. There are 54 cities on the island, separated into four parts, that consist of 6,000 households. Each household has 10 to 16 people in it, and the population needs to be swapped around every once in a while to keep the numbers exact. They are then subdivided into 30 different households that elect a leader called a Syphagrantus. Uh, the Syphagrantus are led by a top leader called a Tranaborus, and all the leaders vote on a prince who is essentially king for life. Again, very complicated. Feel free to forget everything I just said. The key facts are this. No one on the island has any property, and all the goods are held in common at a central location where if you want something, you just go and get it. Also, every citizen is required to farm for at least two years, and after that, everyone must have a job that benefits the community. Also, there are slaves. That's right. Every household is required to have two slaves. These slaves are either criminals or foreigners. So, that's interesting. Also, there's complete religious freedom, uh, except for atheism. Atheists are seen as corruptors, whose ideas will cause the collapse of the state. Personally, I don't believe in that. The book gets incredibly detailed on how the utopians deal with population, uh, specifically birth rates and the raising of children, how war is fought, 
how punishment is doled out and so forth and so on. The book has been quite influential over the years, and the ideas in Utopia get picked up uh, as examples of, well, in particular, socialism and communism with the whole, you know, no private ownership of things thing. And thinkers like Marx, for instance, conveniently like to, like to cite Utopia, but conveniently overlook the less savory aspects of the book. In a similar fashion, uh, fascist writers and thinkers like Ayn Rand, or Ayn Rind, or however you want to say it, really love the centralized power aspect of the book, but again, dismiss the parts they don't care for, like communal living and such. So the book is controversial, uh, and it has been and continues to be interpreted in various ways that suit the particular worldview of the person interpreting it. For me, uh, as I said in this op- as the opening to this ramble, I see it as a satirical book. Uh, and to be fair, I believe that is the general scholarly view. But for me, I see it in, in, in a similar vein as A Modest Proposal by Jonathan Swift. Uh, Moore was detailing an extreme situation to emphasize how power corrupts. And once an all-powerful leader slash system is implemented, there's really nothing anyone can do to stop it. Utopia quickly becomes dystopia. Or rather, utopia is dystopia by its very nature. But the thing is, no one living in that system really knows that they're in a dystopia because they think they're living in the perfect ideal place. That's the greatest irony. Now, after more, a utopian style of fiction begins to emerge and continues to grow and evolve over the centuries. Regardless of what is actually in the book, the idea of a perfect society, the ideal life, begins to be examined. And the utopian ideal as a return to Eden, the, the creation of a place of innocence or, or fairness or equality becomes a desirable goal. But as it is explored in story, there is always a price to be paid. There is always something that's not quite right. There are many, many ways Moore's work has impacted social, political, philosophical ideas after its publication, but what I'm more concerned with is utopia's influence on fiction and storytelling. And through the centuries, you can find examples of its influence in in things like Francis Bacon's New Atlantis or Gulliver's Travels by Swift, Things to Come by H.G. Wells, just to name a few wildly differing types of stories that are decades apart that were directly or indirectly influenced by utopia. Now, for my purposes here, the thing I find interesting and is relevant to Man-Thing, remember Man-Thing? It's a podcast about Man-Thing. The interest, the thing I find interesting is that there is a utopian trend in storytelling and pop culture that happened in the late 60s and continued to develop and evolve, or, or possibly devolve, into the 1970s. See, there was this uh, futurism movement that began, well, actually in the 1950s, that was... Um, it was a dream of a, of a push-button life that was filled with curves and chrome. Everything was going to be easy and swell. And it would free up time for noble pursuits like exploiting the environment and disenfranchising the proletariat. <laughs> it was the 1950s. They had, they, they had different priorities. Anyway, that futurist idea in the 1960s coupled with the civil rights movements to create this idea of a perfect society, a utopia built on modern sensibilities with a smattering of hippie free love thrown in for good measure. This brave new world produced a rather hopeful brand of story. The best example for this I can think of at the time is Star Trek. It's a future where there is no hunger, there is no poverty, all peoples are truly equal, and even our giant space force 
will gallivant across the stars, not for empire building and conquest, but rather for exploration and the betterment of science. It's all very, well, utopian. But as the 60s became the 70s, and the shine came off the hippie peace and love facade, so too did the utopian type of story. Just as Woodstock became Altamont, Utopia showed its darker side. The utopian stories that would come at this time would still depict perfect societies on the surface, but always lurking just below the surface. There was something sinister, something malevolent. Perhaps a price needed to be paid. Examples for this are, and and at this point I probably should point out, there are many examples of this type of fiction, but the ones I'm going to use are, uh, are schlock 70s films because, you know, that's who I am. All my citations are B-movies and pulp novels. So, anyway, examples of this are, for instance, Zardoz. I mean, aside from having Sean Connery in a red diaper and a bandolier, it also depicts a serene and cultured society of, uh, of eternal humans just going around thinking and stuff. They also get very bored and either go insane or terrorize a subclass of people by giving them guns and religion. You know, like you do. Another example is Logan's Run. Again, a perfect society where no one wants for anything and lives happy, content lives. That life, however, lasts only until the age of 30 when it is mandated by law that you be killed in a drug-fueled ecstasy, much like many of my favorite rock and roll stars. And in a bit of a more of an obscure example, A Boy and His Dog. This features a very young Don Johnson traversing a post-apocalyptic desert with his telepathic dog looking for food and sex. And yes, this is a real movie, and it's awesome. It's based on a Harlan Ellison novella, and in it, Don Johnson and his dog find an underground society. Literally underground. It's below the ground. And the society is called Topeka where everyone wears white face and dresses like it's 1940, and they are guarded by an android. I'm serious, this is an amazing movie. So, on the surface, Topeka seems like the perfect society, where everyone is nice and cultured, but of course there's a sinister underpinning, and the whole thing culminates in betrayal and cannibalism. You, you really gotta see this movie. Anyway, there are tons of examples of this kind of thing, uh, from movies and novels and TV. It, it was everywhere. And, and you know what? It, it's still kind of around with us today, although most of what we find today is based more on the dystopian side rather than from the utopian side. Regardless, there are lots of examples. The message overall seems to be that utopia, while a lofty goal and an idea to be strived for, is really an illusion and unobtainable. Which is interesting because a literal translation of the word utopia is no place. It doesn't exist. So now, with that in mind, let us continue with our Man-Thing story from last episode, in which our intrepid swamp monster comes upon a utopian city deep in the heart of the nexus of all realities. Will there be something dark hiding just below the surface? You can probably figure that out by what I've been talking about for the last ten minutes, but you never know. I might be leading you astray. But let's find out in Man-Thing number 8, The Gift of Death. Cover dated August 1974, it was written by Steve Gerber, art and inks by Mike Plug, colors by Petra Goldberg, lettered by Artie Simak, edited by Roy Thomas. Deep in the swamp, Man-Thing patiently awaits the approach of a boat piloted by F.A. Schist and Hargood Wickham. 
When the impact occurs, Wickham and Schist are thrown clear, and Man-Thing feels the full weight of the collision. His body, after having been doused with the waters of the Rainbow Fountain, is beginning to harden and solidify. The impact also causes Wickham and Schist's boat to explode in a rather impressive blast. That's some fine craftsmanship right there. After the explosion, Wickham complains to Schist that he's crazy and is going to get them both killed, prompting the reader to think, well, duh. Man-Thing, meanwhile, struggles to his feet and stumbles back toward La Hacienda, the home of the Rainbow Fountain. Schist and Wickham follow. When Man-Thing reaches La Hacienda, he is greeted by the captain and Lorena, who were afraid of Man-Thing when they first met, but now treat him with kindness and invite him in. Schist and Wickham sneak over a wall. At this point, however, Wickham is raising concerns over the killing of Man-Thing, since it seems he is now more man than monster. Also, he feels that Schist might be a little crazy. Again, Wickham, duh. Man-Thing is led down a corridor to an underground lair slash laboratory where he's introduced to two shadowy figures called the Fathers. And you know, two individuals hidden in darkness with grotesque silhouettes, I'm sure this will work out just fine. But actually, they seem to want to truly help Man-Thing and order him to be placed on an operating table where his muck can be siphoned out, leaving only his manhood, giggle giggle, remaining. But then Schist and Wickham arrive, demanding to speak to whoever is in charge. Schist wants to bottle the Fountain of Youth and sell it on the open market because eternal life and unregulated capitalism is sure to be a fine mix. Man-Thing, now in a part-monster, part-human form, hears Schist and is pissed. After all, Schist is the fellow that has attempted to kill Man-Thing on multiple occasions, and that sort of thing tends to make you a bit cranky. He attacks Schist, causing Wickham to flee in terror right into a bottomless chasm, falling wildly coyote-style to his death. Meanwhile, Man-Thing, who at this point is really Man and Thing, lifts Schist over his head, ready to crush him on the cold stone floor. But Lorena, who has only known peace, calms him and has Man-Thing place Schist back down in safety. Schist then confronts the shadowy fathers with his business proposal and his intention to drink the waters of the fountain. The fathers say, sure, give it a go, buddy, I'm paraphrasing, and they hand him a vial of the rainbow water. Schist drinks it, and this causes Schist to burn and his flesh to melt away. The fathers then step from the shadows, revealing that they are two skeletal zombie-type things and that you're not supposed to drink the water, you're only supposed to bathe in it. The fathers have tricked Schist into becoming a zombie skeleton man. This is kind of a dick move, but Schist is kind of a dick himself, so it all evens out in the end. However, Schist is understandably a bit peeved. He attacks Lorena and vows revenge. Man-Thing leaps to her defense, and a battle ensues. A battle that shatters the glass container of siphoned muck, which falls on Man-Thing, reversing the humanization process and reverting him to his previous monster form. Once this happens, Schist becomes frightened, and all who know fear burn at the Man-Thing's touch. Schist dissolves to a pile of dust. The fathers then choose not to restore Man-Thing back to being human again for fear of him giving away their secrets. And as Man-Thing walks off sadly to resume his mindless existence in the swamp, Lorena and the fathers have this exchange. He would learn our secret? Correct, Lorena. And the cycle would begin all over again. Man is still not ready to surrender his baser emotions for the joy of eternal youth. Thus, rather than jeopardize our own tranquility again, it is best we let the Man-Thing return to his mindless existence in the swamp. Pity. 
So that is the end of Mr. F.A. Schist, the fascist himself, burned to dust because of greed and selfishness. And there was much rejoicing. As I said in the last episode, I'm not sad to see Schist go. His utility ran its course, and I don't think there was much more to do with him as a character. So going out being a greedy ass is is fitting, I suppose. And as far as the Fathers and the Rainbow Fountain and the inhabitants of La Hacienda, they will not make any more appearances in Man-Thing, at least as written by Gerber. To my knowledge, that is. Uh, Maybe this is one of those mistakes I will spend many sleepless nights obsessing over, but at this point in time, I feel strongly that I am correct. They will not make another appearance in a Man-Thing comic written by Steve Gerber. They will make an appearance in Savage She-Hulk in the 1980s, however. Uh, I've not read that particular issue or issues. I can't speak to it. It was not written by Gerber, uh, so I'm curious curious how that all worked out. If anyone knows uh, those issues in which these characters appear in Savage She-Hulk and what happens, send me a note or a tweet or impart your knowledge to me in some form of electronic transmission. This issue, however, Manthing number 8, leans heavily on traditional horror tropes. Uh, with the lab underground in a, in a kind of dungeon, and figures hidden in the shadows, potions and bubbling vats, secrets to be uncovered, and a very large hole very close to where people hang out. <laughs> Why do secret lairs have bottomless caverns? Uh, it's, it's completely unknown to me. Yet they frequently are left open and unguarded for folks to just fall into willy-nilly. Hey, I'm gonna run to the bathroom real quick. I'll be back in a moment. Ah! You know, Bob, we really should put a gate around that bottomless chasm. Really becoming an occupational safety hazard. <laughs> anyway, the design of the fathers, uh, the look of them, I-, I like a lot, actually. It's very reminiscent of Tales from the Crypt or Creepy Magazine. Uh, some great character design from Mike Plug. They are... They are scary and gross, and yet still somehow sympathetic. Uh, just, just very well done. The thing, <laughs> the thing I found most off-putting, however, as far as design, was the human-monster hybrid form of Man-Thing. I don't know. There's just something so unsettling about the human body with that tiny green head and his big red eyes, <laughs> and the and the mouth tendrils just kind of hanging down over his chest. It's it's just not right. As for the story itself, it's pretty straightforward. Man-Thing is brought in and is given the opportunity for healing. There is uh, an implication thrown in at the end that somehow Man-Thing's muck can uh, restore the father's humanity, but it's not really explained, and it's hard to see exactly how that would work other than to hand-wave it away and say it's, you know, magic science, but that's not really important. The important part is that Schist arrives, and through his greed and selfishness, he destroys himself and Man-Thing's chance to be normal again. That's it. I mean, that, that's the whole story in a nutshell. But there are a couple things going on here that I find pretty interesting. First of all, that utopian idea. It, it's here. La Hacienda is a paradise. Gerber uses the comparison to Shangri-La again. Man-Thing, recall, was expelled from paradise in the last issue because of his inhumanity. But here, as his humanity is returning and he has changed, he is welcomed back and given the chance of redemption. But through no fault of his own, he allows corruption to follow him in, in the form of Wickham Wickham and Schist. This is inadvertent, of course, but how Man-Thing reacts to the presence of the intruders, Schist in particular, is violent, and he attacks. And yes, he's acting as protector, but it's obvious that his behavior cannot be accepted in Eden, cannot be accepted in Paradise. 
It cannot be allowed to corrupt the innocent, epitomized by Lorena. This circular redemption arc for Man-Thing will be played out uh, quite a bit going forward. We will see him again and again come so close to being cured, to being fixed, to having Ted Salas reemerge. But alas, it will never be. His sad, mindless existence is the price that must be paid for the protection of the Nexus. This is, uh, for this reason, this is why I, I don't really care much for the recent R.L. Stein run, because it ignored this tragedy. It ignored the inherent tragedy of Man-Thing. What makes him compelling as a character is this dichotomy between his dual natures. He's a brutish, mindless monster, true, but he is also sad and sympathetic. And these two things are needed to keep the world safe. Another interesting thing here, as the story plays out, it seems as if we are going to get the standard utopia, but with a price scenario. Uh, I talked about this in today's topic, and it has all the trappings. Beautiful, lovely, peaceful place where all the inhabitants are happy, but underneath are shadowy figures pulling the strings. And it quite easily could have gone in that direction, but no. Gerber pulls the rug out on us. The fathers are actually protectors, guiding the paradise with wisdom born of past indiscretion and greed. They have learned. The fathers were the first to find the fountain, and they did exactly what Schist did and drank the water. And this destroyed them. It twisted their bodies to skeletal red monstrosities. Now, they could have gone on to host a 1950s comedy variety show, but they chose to stay and help the inhabitants of La Hacienda. Boom! That was a red skeleton joke. You don't get those too often. And there was much rejoicing. But the thing is, the thing is that Gerber sets up the traditional twist on the utopian ideal by twisting the reveal again. The monsters are, in fact, good guys, in a sense. I mean, they did kind of screw over Schist, but they did it to protect the city, so you can kind of forgive them for that. You could also read it as the fathers were attempting to give Schist the same opportunity that they had to become a better person. But uh, that reading is a, a bit of a stretch. The interesting thing here to me is the way that Gerber is both cynical and hopeful at the same time. The overarching metaphor here is that, well, humanity is just awful, and, they're not, and, and, and we're not ready to return to paradise, that our baser instincts will ruin what is perfect. But that ideal place does exist. La Hacienda is Eden. It is Shangri-La. And it was started by two guys who were basically the schists of their time, but through a kind of purgatory they were able to learn the error of their ways, and they founded a perfect society. And in a way, that's, that, that's really hopeful. In a way, it says that, yes, we're not ready, not ready now, but perhaps in time, after some struggle, after some hard lessons, we too will be able to return to paradise, to live a perfect life. Well, at least, that's the way I like to read it. Okay, so that's it. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and uh, I actually had a blast making it. I also read Utopia again for the first time in a couple of decades, so if nothing else, my Man-Thing obsession is really paying off as far as getting back into my uh, getting back to my philosophy reading list. Also, taken out of context, the phrase my Man-Thing obsession could be interpreted in various ways, including applying inappropriate innuendo to it. Speaking of inappropriate innuendo, next time on an all-new episode of the Nexus of All Realities, it's finally here. The big one.
the most inappropriate sounding comic book title in the history of the medium. That's right, it's Giant Size Man Thing. Yes, whoop, there it is indeed. And may I reiterate, whoop, shakalaka, whoop. Oh, I've been waiting for this moment for a long, long time. And as we all know, I have the sense of humor of an eight-year-old, so... I don't know if I'll be able to contain myself with a deluge of adolescent jokes already in my mind. But I will attempt to be professional. I will tuck it away, I'll push it to one side, and perhaps I'll minimize its appearance. But hey, before the next episode, which will be in about two weeks, do you have a favorite giant-sized man-thing joke? And if you do... Send it to me on Twitter, at Nexus of All, and, well, let's just get silly, shall we? So next time will be fun. We're going to do some, ooh, some giant-sized man thing. Okay, so until next time, thanks everyone again for listening. I always love to hear from you. Uh, I love to get your feedback. Uh, and just to uh, just start a conversation. So hit me up on Twitter, at Nexus of All, or send me uh, an email to nexus at daddyelk.com. That's D-A-D-D-Y-E-L-K dot com. Nexus at in a different, you know, put it in the right order. Anyway, I'm rambling now, so I'll just say goodbye. And there was much rejoicing. You've been listening to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elf production. Man Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at Nexus of All. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained?